And so I want to take just a moment again before we jump into the message today. I want to acknowledge the significance of what today is, right? It, it, is, it is a very special thing when, when we get to uh, use our freedom that we are blessed with to in turn worship. And I at least like to remind us different seasons, uh, different moments that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that would love to have the freedom we have. And yet, I would more than acknowledge that when we gather in church on Sundays, right, we're not gathering to do just an American thing. We're gathering to do a Christian thing, right? We're gathering to use the freedom we have to bend the knee, to bow the heart at the foot of Jesus. And I am certainly thankful, thankful for those who've given all. In fact, we would easily say, right, that we are the home of the free because of the brave. But I also want to recognize that America's got a long way to go, right? We don't have it all figured out. We are not, um, we're not perfect, but we're certainly thankful that we have what we have. And so I want to take a moment, I want to pray for our country this morning and uh, pray for all Americans as much in that, pray for those who might even be around the world today serving to protect the freedoms that we're enjoying this morning. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I'm thankful today for your grace. And I'm thankful that your word says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord, I, I believe that was significant for our founders, that they believed they were doing something significant, something special, something that you even were doing in bringing freedom. And as we prayed a while ago, we don't worship our freedom, we worship you, Jesus, but we use that freedom to bow our hearts, to bend our knees. And Jesus, we pray for our country. And Lord, I'm not sure there's a time in my lifetime I've ever seen us more divided than in the last few years. And Lord, I pray that you would do something great, something special, something, something that would exalt you and you alone in these days and these years ahead. Lord, I thank you for the men and women who, who sacrifice much and in some cases sacrifice all. I pray for their protection and wherever they are today. I pray that you would stir in them and draw them to yourself. And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters, fellow believers in Christ around the world who don't have what we have. There are moments where we think that we would like them to have what we have, and yet they'd gather hidden in closets, hidden in basements, in some cases hidden in caves. They'd gather for hours on end. To do what we're doing here, to bow their hearts before you. In some ways, Jesus, I pray, not that we would lose our freedoms, but that we would not take for granted our freedoms that we might be more like some of our brothers and sisters 
who literally do sacrifice much to worship you. Jesus, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for your goodness today. I thank you we get to have a unified service today with all our folks together and our folks online. I, I thank you we get to have our kids with us today. And pray that today be a fun day of not only worshiping you, but in worship, studying your word. And so, Jesus, we ask that you speak to our lives right here, right now, today. Jesus, we love you. We seek you, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me, and thanks for praying for our country. I love this nation. You love this nation. and We're deeply thankful for the freedoms we have, and uh, we don't want to miss that. I trust that later today you will do something uh, likely very American. You might, uh, you might set off fireworks. You might watch fireworks. You, you might pray that the fireworks don't get things, right? You you uh, might uh, have barbecue, smoke barbecue, or eat barbecue, or pizza, or who knows. But uh, you'll be celebrating today. I'm just proud of you for using your freedom, for what our freedom's really meant for, a freedom to express ourselves in worship. I'm going to take a bit of a turn, if you will. We're in a series we've called Prayer 101, and I want to see if I can do something different for us today. I want to take two different places in scripture, tie them together and see if they'll make sense. And I'll get to what those scriptures are in just a moment, but I want to show you some pictures because part of what we've said in this series is that, is that prayer is often misunderstood. That we sometimes think of prayer as, as, as going to God as though God was a genie in a bottle, right? And so there's this image sort of in our heads that when we pray that we're sort of moving God to do something on our behalf as though we're going to a genie in a bottle. And yet I think this is a false image of prayer. God is not a genie for us to manipulate. We would all sort of agree with that mentally, right? And yet sometimes prayer sort of feels like that for us. Furthermore, sometimes prayer feels like this experience. It's late at night, you're hungry, you're making your way to Taco Bell, or you're making your way to a vending machine, and you go through a drive through or you pull up at an airport, and there's, everything's closed, and you've got to go through a vending machine. And so you get the idea here, right, that, that often prayer can kind of seem like, hey, hey, God, I, I'll take two burritos, a taco, and a side of peace to go with my life today, or you're kind of choosing among the limited options of the vending machine. And again, I think these are false images of prayer, that this is not what prayer is. Prayer is not a drive-through to just ask God for what you want. Prayer is not a vending machine we approach to say, God, I'll put in a buck and see what I can get in return. Prayer is, as we talked about last week, prayer is talking with God about what we're doing together. That's Dallas Willard's definition that I particularly like. And I want to see if I can give you a slightly different picture today, but I don't have a picture for this one. The picture would be familiar to you, though. You pull up to uh, some intersections, and it'll say you can't do this, and you pull up to other intersections, and you'll see signs that say you can. And the picture would be a U-turn. That's what I titled today's message. Prayer is a, is a U-turn, if you will. And that takes me to the scripture I want to think about today. In fact, first of two. It's often quoted for America, 
almost as if it was written about America. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Do you know that verse of the Bible? That my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You know that, you know that one? Right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will fear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, I'm sure you're smart enough to know this, but I want to make sure everybody's in the know, right? I want to make sure I let me in on it at least. That verse wasn't written about the United States of America. It's written about ancient Israel. And it's got a context. I want to see if I can explore it today. So I want to take this very familiar verse. And I don't think it's wrong to pray for our nation, to pray that for our nation. But, but I would more appropriately pray it for the church than I would for the nation as a whole. That if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. Because we are his people, the church. So I want to see if I can take that verse tie it to another story in the Bible you're familiar with and see if we can make it all make a little more sense. So over later in your Bible, in the book of Daniel, in fact, if you have your Bibles today, I want you to put one little marker, something, piece of paper, something out of your bulletin, something at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That's where that prayer is, if my people are called by my name. 2 Chronicles 7. I want you to put a marker there, and then I want you to find Daniel 6. In your Bible, Daniel chapter 6. Now, Daniel 6 is a great, great story of the Bible. It's one we often tell in uh, kids' classes. It's one we often tell at VBS, right? It's the story of Daniel and the big kitty cats, right? You know that story, don't you? Daniel, where Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. So, Daniel lived a whole long time after 2 Chronicles was written. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, was in exile. Now, exile is just a fancy word to say another country came into Israel, took, <laughs> wiped out Israel, destroyed their temple, destroyed their palaces, destroyed their city, took the best and brightest among them, and took them back to another place. And so they lived as citizens of another world in another world, in essence. They lived as citizens of Israel in this case, in Babylon, and then later in the Medes, among the Persians, various other rulers that Daniel served under. And so Daniel was in exile, just again, meaning that he had allowed the, this, this, God had allowed this foreign enemy to come in, devastate the homeland of Israel, and take prisoners back to this foreign land. And that story is in 2 Kings chapter 25, if you're certainly interested in it. And so in Daniel 6, Daniel 1... Daniel finds himself serving the king of Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. But what happens in the book of Daniel over time is that Daniel actually outlasts the kings of these different kingdoms. And so Daniel, by Daniel 6, finds himself serving Darius, king of the Medes and the Persians, the king of the Persian Empire, Darius the Great. And so we would read this, Daniel chapter 6. I think I'm going to begin in verse 4, but I think I only have verse 5 on the screen. It says, at this, the administrators and the satraps, now these were just the leaders of the kingdom who served under the king. There were 120-some of them, and Daniel was an administrator over the 120-some leaders of the kingdom. 
At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs. Remember, Daniel's not from Babylon. He's not from Persia. He's not a Mede. He is a foreigner among them, but he is using his influence as a God follower to influence these cities in which he lives in exile. They were trying to find a reason to bring charges against Daniel and his conduct, but they couldn't, since they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. You do realize we're talking about the world of governmental affairs here. They could find no corruption in Daniel serving in... Finding no corruption in the government is... No, I don't need to go there. They could find no corruption. Wouldn't it be great if we could have that? I'm not talking about party on the right or party on the left. It'd just be, it'd be great if there were no corruption in leadership. Because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king, and they said to him, may King Darius live forever. Suck-ups. And the royal administrators and prefects and satraps and advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius didn't really think about it, which is a pretty good lesson for us. It has nothing to do with my message today, but that, that verse is a pretty good lesson for us. This was a moment to pause and think about, do I really want to rush forward with this? He didn't. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So they knew this just as he had done before. They knew that if they said you can only pray to King Darius... And to no one else, no other God, no other human being. You can't pray to anything or anyone else except the king for 30 days. They knew that Daniel would not violate that because he already lived in exile, not worshiping their gods, not worshiping their king. He already had that character. They knew this is what Daniel was going to do. They knew he would go back to his room. They knew, now, think about it. Daniel could just go back to his room, close the window shades... And pray in private. But he didn't. He lived out his faith publicly. Because after all, he's serving in a very high-level position. He had nothing to hide. And I guess the question I want you to ask today, particularly as I try to tie these two stories from the Bible together, is I want to ask you, what was Daniel praying? And I think I know the answer. Why was Daniel praying? Again, I think I know the answer. Now, you and I would do much to learn from Daniel here, right? To resist playing slip and slide with the truth. 
right? That it's common these days when we're kind of, when the faith is under pressure to slip and slide the truth and hide a little here and hide a little there. And Daniel just said, hey, I'm a man of character. I have this ongoing conversation with God. I'm talking with God about what we're doing together. And so Daniel says, hey, I can't pray to King Darius. I can't pray to the king. I pray to the king of kings, essentially. And so I'm going to do what I've always done. Now, why would Daniel do that? And what was Daniel praying? Remind you, Exodus would tell us from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, right, that you should not bow down to any other gods, no other gods before me, right? So Daniel's got that in his mind, and I can't do this. So again, I know it's a little weird. Usually I'm in one text of the Bible, and I quote a verse here and there. Today I'm going back and forth. So Daniel 6, Daniel's praying. What is he praying? Why is he praying? Flip back in your Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, chapter 7. Here's what's going on in 2 Chronicles 6 and 7. You remember there was a king named David. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord told him he couldn't do it. That he had blood on his hands essentially. And he wasn't pure. Of course, I don't know that Solomon was all that pure, frankly, especially later Solomon. But that it, God, for whatever reason, said, David, you're not going to be able to do this. Your son's going to be able to do this. And David provided all these resources to be able to build a temple for, the God, for God. Because you might remember that he had built, David, a palace for himself, that he had a palace to live in. But God was still, his presence was still abiding in a tent and they said, we need to build a temple, a permanent place for God to reside. And so they did. And that's a lot of what the early part of 2 Second Chronicles is about. And at 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon gathers the nation of Israel together, and he prays a prayer of dedication. In 2 Chronicles 7, God actually moves into that temple and speaks to God. And that, that verse, if, if my people are called by my name... Notice who's speaking there. It's not, I'm going to tell you, it's not Solomon. It's God speaking there. God is saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. But why is God saying that? Look at Solomon's prayer with me in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 24. I'm just going to start there. 2 Chronicles 6, 24 when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy, this is Solomon praying to God. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to their land you gave them and to their ancestors. And when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, Remember, there was a story we were in last week, right, about Elijah calling a drought, but it was in line with what God had said, right, that there'd be no rain because they'd forsaken God. So the same thing here. He says, when you pray towards this place, toward this place, and give praise to your name, and when they do this, and they turn from their sin because you afflicted them, consequences, for their sin, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, and teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave the people for an inheritance. 
Now, he's a little repetitive in this prayer. You wouldn't know anybody who prays a little repetitively, would you? No, me neither. But I want to pick up again, verse 36. I want to take you through the end of the chapter. This is what Solomon is praying when he dedicates the temple. And, and, and I can't, for the life of me, begin to describe the temple to you. But imagine one of the seven wonders of the world and picture that in your mind. And you would be picturing something on that grand magnitude, grand scale. So verse 36 Solomon, on behalf of the people, when they, the people, sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away, land far, far away, or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, what is Daniel doing? He's pleading with God in the land of captivity where God has given them over to an enemy because the people have forsaken God. When the people say, we have sinned, verse 37, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken, and if they pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place Hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So you see what Solomon's doing here. He's saying that this temple becomes a place that the people can always seek towards and pray towards. That the presence of God dwelling on earth was meant to be a place, a presence where the people of God could point to and look to and say, God, we need you. We need to return to you. We need to turn back to you. So Solomon ends the prayer and says, now my God, may your ears be open and your, or your eyes be open rather and your ears be attentive to the prayers offered in this place. And then he sings, it would appear, now arise Lord God and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And may your priests, Lord God be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promise to David, your servant. In verse, chapter 7, verse 1 says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, concerned the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so, so the glory of God that was outside the temple now goes in and inhabits this place. And the response to the people is magnificent because the first verses of 2 Chronicles 7 tell us that they spent all day worshiping God. And then another all day worshiping God, and then another all day worshiping God. In fact, the people spent not one, not two, not three, not five, not seven, not eight, not nine, not ten, not twelve, fifteen days before the temple worshiping God. And this prayer that Solomon had prayed was, if my people reject you, God, and you, in turn, lead the consequences for them, allow consequences of rejecting you, may they turn back to you and may they turn back to this place. May they turn back to the presence of God. That was Solomon's prayer. So they worshiped for 15 days, chapter 7 says. And then, interestingly, God dismisses the people. 
God has spoken publicly to the people about God. Now God is going to speak privately to Solomon about the people. Verse 11, chapter 7, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord, the royal palace had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer, have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up, this is God agreeing to what Solomon has proposed. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and then I will forgive their sin, and then I will hear, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive to the prayers offered in this place that I have chosen, that I have consecrated this temple so that my name be, may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will always be there. To go back to Daniel's story for just a second, what is Daniel doing when he gets down on his knees and publicly prays towards Jerusalem? He is praying this prayer of repentance. He is praying on behalf of his people, restore us, God. He is doing what I want us to get today. So let's fill in some blanks because you think we're going to be here all day. You're thinking, one service. Brian thinks he can preach till noon. <laughs> Remember, they waited 15 days. It might feel like 15 days, but I promise you, this will not be 15 days. So let's fill in some blanks. The one thing. Prayer is, prayer is a lot of things, but prayer is turning toward God. Doesn't that make sense in this context that God is saying if you'll pray toward this temple, toward this place, toward my presence. Remember, it is the presence of God that made its way into the temple. When Daniel was taken, you know what the, the Babylonians did? They destroyed the temple. And Daniel is still praying toward that place, and he is still praying toward the presence of God. And he is praying on behalf of his people, I think, that God would restore them, that God would bring them back. He's been doing this for decades, essentially, at this point. He was a young man when he was taken. Now he is an old man serving King Darius, and he is still praying this prayer of repentance. It's a turning. This part I'm going to go through fairly fast. Turning from what to what. Number one, turning from self-ownership to God-ownership. If my people who are called by my name. This is God claiming ownership of the people. My people, my name. So we need to turn as a people of God from self-ownership to God-ownership to say, you know what, everything I am is yours, everything I have is yours. And the question, great question, is who owns my life? Do I own my life or does God own my life? I think that's a great question for all of us. Number two, turning from self-reliance to God-reliance. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. That there is a sense of reliance here, a sense of dependence here. And the question, I think, for all of us is, who do we depend upon? Because you notice how we tend, when, when all is good, we tend to be self-dependent, self-reliant, and we tend not to humble ourselves and pray. We tend to pride ourselves and just go on. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, we're turning from self-reliance to God-reliance. Number three, we're turning from self-directed to God-directed. Self-direction to God-direction. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Daniel was seeking the face of God, seeking the presence of God. And the question I would ask for you and I is, any given day, who am I facing? The man or the woman in the mirror? Or the God I worship? Number four, turning from self-willed to god will. If my people were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I don't have time to get into the story, but the people of God willed themselves into this place where God said, hey, I have, I have tried and tried and tried. And the people said, doesn't matter how much you've tried, God, we're going to do what we want to do. And God said, you really want life without my hand on you? And the people essentially said, yes, we do. And God said, I'll remove my hand. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, from self-ownership to God-ownership, from self-reliance to God-reliance, from self-directed to God-directed, from self-willed to God-willed, God said, then I will hear from heaven, and then I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. I think that's what Daniel was doing. Doesn't it make sense? So I want to see if I can make this really applicational for us. Because I find that as a Christian in America, I sometimes feel like I live in a land that is my home, that always doesn't look like the home I wish it was. America is my home. I was born here. I am a citizen of this country. I'm thankful to be a citizen of this country. But I recognize that I live for a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. And that what is in this world often doesn't look like the world I wish it was. That Let me be more clear. I wish that not only the United States of America, but the earth as a whole looked more like the kingdom of God and less like the kingdom of man. Does that make sense? Right? That, that we are in this... I mean, how often can we say about this country or any other country that its leaders are like Daniel, full of no corruption? So I think in many senses, you and I, as Christians, are people who live in exile, in a sense, like Daniel. That we live in this world that is but isn't our home because we live as Christians for a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. So when America looks more like Babylon than it does like Jesus... How am I to live as a Christian in exile? And I would tell you, you live as Daniel did. You live as Daniel did. And you keep your focus on the king of kings. So back in Daniel's story, I told you I was going to go back, forth, back, and forth. This would be the fourth. We're not going back, we're going forth. Daniel 6. Yeah. We're going forth on the... See what I did there, right? 
Daniel 6. He had Daniel in exile. He is praying. What is he praying? I think he is praying, God, we are your people. God, we are called by your name. God, we do humble ourselves and pray. God, we do seek your face. God, I am on behalf of the people turning from our wicked ways. Please hear us from heaven. Please forgive our sin. Please heal our land. What do Christians need to understand when we live in exile? I've got three points for you, and we'll land this thing. Is that fair? Is that fair? I mean, we don't have to land it. We can stay for 15 days if you want. But I'm pretty sure you got barbecue or fireworks or something to get to today. Oh, you got fireworks? There we go. There we go. What time? <laughs> Fireworks are good. It's good. All right, three reminders for Christians in American exile. Reminder number one, I think we need to stop expecting earthly kings to save us that never will. Stop expecting earthly kings, earthly queens, we can expand that, earthly politicians, earthly presidents, earthly congressmen and women, earthly... Right? We can put all forms of government in here. Let's stop expecting earthly kings to save us that never will. There's this interesting thing that happens. Daniel's story goes on. Right? Daniel learned the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he'd done before. And you know the story. The men, the leaders of the government, went to King Darius and said, King Darius, you remember what you proposed, what you put in writing, the thing that could not be altered? Daniel is violating that very thing. And verse 4, and they said basically, look, you've got to do what you said you would do. If anybody's ever going to respect you, you've got to do what you said. You've got to put Daniel in the lion's den, right? Which is a death sentence, isn't it? I mean, I have visited the lions at the zoo on many occasions. But I have not been in the den with the lions. I have, however, been just outside the den and seen the lion on the other side of the glass and thought, oh, kitty, 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 kitty. But if you take that glass out of play, me... Versus lion. I know who's winning that. This is a death sentence. Verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel. And he made every effort until sundown to save him. So Daniel could have put his hope in the king's ability to save him. But at the end of the day, the king was unable to. And I think... For Christians in America today, we often have to fight the temptation to put our hopes in the kings of the earth. That it, it's way too easy to think that if only the vote went the way we wanted, or if, and I'm saying that to both sides, every four years, we, we reach people who vote both ways. Actually, every which way, right? Right, left, in between, you name it. Right? And, and every four years, Part of our church comes to me and just bemoans the fact that America is doomed forever because of whoever did or didn't win a presidency. 
And I like to remind us in those moments that that has been said by Christians every four years for hundreds of years now. And that the king of kings is still the king of kings. That our hope is not in the people of power or politics or for that matter the other things we put our hopes in as human beings. All the things those politicians teams seem to live for all the all the all the you know all the the cash and the the power and the influence the people possessions the pleasure that our hope is not in those things we don't want to be driven by a security that is rooted in this world because it can be snatched from us just like that in this world we have a security that is far better number 2 This story reminds me to trust that what humankind cannot change, Jesus can. That is the hope of the gospel, isn't it? That what humans cannot change, Jesus can. I'm just going to skip a couple of verses. Verse 16 says, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king... The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you, save you. Is really the word. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And suddenly I'm thinking about somewhere else in scripture. Where a stone was brought and a death sentence had been carried out. And the world thought this cannot be changed. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Oh, really? So Daniel's out hanging out at the you know, local Persian zoo, hanging out with a bunch of lions in their home, And he's doing what all of us cat lovers have wished our whole life would be possible. You know, he's scratching the kitty behind the ears, right? And he's maybe tugging at their tail a little bit. And, you know, I mean, I I grew up with cats. So, right, I I get around cats. I'm allergic to them, which I probably, you know, would be the lions as well. But, but, But I'm allergic to them, but I grew up around cats. And so you get me around kitty cats. Sorry, just the kid in me. You get me around... Little kitties, right? And I'm ready to play, right? Like, we have little boxing matches, and they get their little paws out, you know, and they're, <laughs> right? You take those little kitty teeth, and they're sharp as all get out. And, and Daniel's doing with lions what I do with kittens. And why exactly is Daniel protected? Well, here would be my argument, because he prayed toward the presence of God, and I think the presence of God was with him in that den. Now, it's the other story in Daniel where you have the, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, but, but I would suggest that it is the presence of God with him. You can destroy the place where the presence of God lives, but you cannot destroy the presence of God. And so as Christian people... We should know that just as Daniel was good as dead and the stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it and Daniel's situation might not be changed, that that's if you're not looking to a world where God can answer. And we pray to a God who can answer. 
And the best news ever is that what no human can change, Jesus can, and he did. And they put Jesus in the tomb, you remember. The death sentence had already happened. Jesus was dead, and they put his body in the tomb, and they put the stone over it to seal it to say, essentially, this cannot be changed. And God had an answer on Easter morning. Anybody feel hopeless about anything in their life these days? Were there any moments in COVID where you were just ready to give up and feel hopeless? Anything with family that feels like, there's always hope because the presence of God is always available to pray to. This said the situation could not be changed. God said, yeah, yeah, just wait. Now, contrast this, right? All the leaders have said, we're going to make an edict that says you can't pray to anybody but Darius for 30 days. It's all good. It's all good. And the people are all praying to Darius, and this just over and over goes out of its way to say Darius couldn't do a thing about it. Daniel, by himself, praying to a God who the people are going probably can't do anything, and God changes everything. For Daniel, we should be like that. Number three, I should trust, I should believe that I will always know more about Jesus' presence when my earthly security blanket is absent. I will always know more about Jesus' presence when my earthly security blanket is absent. There was nothing left to protect Daniel. No more security blankets. We rely on a lot of things in our Western world as security blankets. When all of those things are removed, I'm promising you those are the moments where you tend to best understand the presence of God with you inside your soul because you cannot rely on any of those security blankets anymore. Does that make sense? The lesson that Darius needed to learn was the lesson that Daniel already knew that the presence of Jesus is enough. And that's what Daniel was practicing as he prayed, that he was turning and tuning into that presence of God. And so the king returned to his palace, verse 18 says, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. The, the translators are being genuine, generous here. The entertainment you can, in an adult world, sort of envision. And he could not sleep, and at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. May God, my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions, and they've not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted his God. And then at the king's command, those who falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their families, essentially. And before they reached the floor of the den, you can read the rest of the story on what happened.
Can I promise you that God will always, when you go through the fire, when you walk through the lion's den, that God will always close the mouth of the lions, that you will suffer no scar? No, I, I cannot promise you that. But I can promise you that the presence of God is always there. That when your earthly security blanket is absent, that Jesus' presence will be real and you will know it and you will understand it. And that wounds in this life might be real, but God never promises essentially that there will be no wounds. He does promise that there will be an eternity without wounds. In fact, if you really study the end of the book and you study the resurrection of Jesus, what you find is that there'll really only be one scar in heaven. The scar left in the hands of Jesus. So here's what I know. I am his people who's called by his name. And every day I have the chance to humble myself and pray and seek his face and turn from my wicked ways. Do I always? No. But should I trust in his presence more? Absolutely. And should I seek it more? Totally. And do I often believe that God will rescue? Oh, if I had the faith that Daniel had. If you had the faith that Daniel had. Here's what I do know. They put Jesus in a grave and they said the story's over. And the story wasn't over. So whether we're talking about the United States of America, we're talking about other kingdoms of the world, or we're talking about you and your family and your story, I would just remind you that if Jesus is there, there is always hope. Because the story isn't over yet. So I always end with two prayers. Can I pray those prayers for us today? I don't want to pray them for you. I want to pray them with you. The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application, a prayer of discipleship. If you need prayer today, maybe you would pray these with me. If you want to commit to live this out today, maybe you would pray these with me. And if you need salvation today, maybe you need what Jesus offers, his forgiveness that we spoke of so much of today. Would you receive it? Right here, right now, today. You can pray just like this. If you need Jesus, you can just pray. Hey, dear Jesus, thank you that you came and lived and died on the cross for my sin. Now, Jesus, please forgive me. It's personal. Take over my life and be my God, Jesus. I turn in prayer to you, Jesus. And I ask you to be my God, be in charge of my life, be my Lord for now and forever. Bring your kingdom and your presence to my life always. In Jesus' name. Amen. So before I pray that second prayer, I just always like to say, if you prayed that prayer, it's powerful. It's life-changing. It's life-altering. And we want to celebrate that prayer with you. You can let us know in a number of ways. I'd love to hear from you on the 
communication card or the digital communication card. I'd love to hear from you in person. If you're here, you can seek me out. You can tell someone who invited you. You can, you can, you can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. Just let us know. I'm trusting that many of you prayed that prayer a number of years ago. Is that, is that fair? If you've prayed that prayer of salvation and yet today you find yourself needing this story applied to your life, maybe you would pray this prayer of dedication, of application with me. Pray it like this, dear Jesus, thank you that in prayer I am reminded of your presence. And so help me always to turn to you, to your presence to my home. Jesus, I confess, and we confess, that as your church, we need to be God-owned, God-reliant, God-directed, and God-willed. Forgive us when we are not, and may we live that way, trusting you in our future. Jesus, help us to always trust that your presence can change what no man can. And so Jesus, help us to live in that hope today. Jesus, again, we thank you for our freedoms. We use it to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.